people are very process driven you know maybe even just engineering driven as well but seldom do they adopt this or know how to adopt this like human-centered design concept to come up with various ideas so when we look at intrapreneurship I'm also thinking about it as the same way whereby how do we help them be brave how do we help them come up with ideas Welcome to the Lost and Transformation podcast series dedicated to the complex world of digital transformation. We feature guests from large corporations, startups, consultancies, and more to shed light on the success factors around innovation, transformation, and adjacent topics. We share firsthand insights and inspiration from experts for all the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and anyone curious about digital transformation. We welcome Eileen Lim to our podcast. From corporate finance to the world of startups, she's a co-founder, mentor, and now leads the innovation and partnerships teams at 500 startups in Singapore. We wanted to find out what inspired her journey, what success looks like in her role, and how to encourage innovation for adults and kids. We hope you enjoy this episode. So hi, Eileen. Thanks for joining us here on Lost in Transformation, and we're happy to have you with us. And you're leading the innovations and partnerships team at 500 Startups in Singapore and have a lot of experience in accelerating the innovation journeys of the stakeholders. So what did the setup look like before, like when you started there? Hmm. So at 500 Startups itself, we actually have two separate arms. We have the investments team and then we have the ecosystems team. Traditionally, in the past couple of years, you know, we've run over 50 plus programs globally and every single country in the world, uh, multiple countries in the world. But this has traditionally been carried out by our team who's based in SF. So we would form a core project team. We would deploy them in market and have them be on the ground for you know three to six months at any point in time and executing innovation projects there with our clients in the market itself. It's only in the recent past one year that we've started opening up more ecosystems offices in various countries itself. For example, Japan is one where we have an office right now for the ecosystems team. And then Singapore is another one. And that's the team that I'm part of. So the whole concept is that we are increasingly seeing a lot of demand coming from corporate clients and so government agencies, advocacy groups who are really looking to uh, leapfrog their innovation initiatives. And we see the demand here. And that's why this is a commitment from 500 startups to actually want to be supporting the whole ecosystem growth. And we want to do so by actually establishing a presence here itself. So right now, for a lot of the deals that we are handling in Southeast Asia, it's all operated out of the Singapore team. Uh, we are also hiring local country managers as well. So you were saying that you're also supporting the whole ecosystem. Do you have like one or two specific examples of how you do that? Mm. So at 500 Startups, when we talk about building thriving ecosystems, we view it as comprising of three key components. The first one is expertise. The second is network. And the third one is capital. So traditionally, we've always been deploying capital, uh, being VC investors ourselves. But over time, we've also realized that that's really a great need for us. And we are well positioned to do that whereby our network of you know, 2,400 
startups globally and also our network with VCs, our networks with CVCs, and also with a lot of accelerator managers who we've actually you know, helped educate over the years through some of our educational programs. Uh, we're actually in a really good place to leverage on all of that and to bring you know, everyone together as well. And so the projects that we run really range from accelerator programs to very dedicated startup sourcing cycles for some of our corporate partners. One of the programs that we're currently running in Singapore is actually together with Enterprise Singapore, where we bring global startups into Singapore to expand here and to help local corporates you know, solve business challenges as well. And on the other hand, we also bring Singaporean startups over to the US to help them discover a new market and really open up a new market there. Interesting. And for these companies, do you have any requirements or uh, what are you looking for when you're working with them? For the startups, we do analyze a lot on their local product market fit. So the startups are typically post-seed stage, so they already have good market traction, they already have product out there. However, they may have found product market fit in their original country, but this product might not be suitable for the new market that they're expanding into. So for example, something that works in Singapore, is there a market for that in the US itself? So that's something that our team, based on our experience in investments and you know, screening thousands of startup applications every year, we use that knowledge to actually identify and analyze if these startups have a product that's suitable for this new market that they're trying to expand into. That's really the key criteria that we look at. Apart from that, of course, we also have the other factors like you know, founding team, traction that they have so far, the strength of the technology that they have as well. Cool. And when you work together with the startups and you want to support them and help them, what does success look like when working with them? How do you measure that? Yeah, this question about success matrix is always one of my favorite questions. Um, <laughs> when, when we run program, I think it's pretty straightforward. We are governed and we hold ourselves accountable to something we call the NPS score. So the Net Promoter Score. And for us itself, consistently, we've always aimed for an NPS score that's above 80. And across most of our programs, we've actually managed to hit that. So we also keep track of the NPS score, not just at the end of the program, but in certain interims of the duration of the program as well, just so that we are able to quickly understand if there are certain startups who are finding a slight lag or slight gap in the programming, we're able to tweak it and cater to them pretty much immediately. And within the companies, are there any specific industries that you're looking at or is it industry agnostic? Very similar to our investment structure, we are sector agnostic. That being said, when we run specific programs itself, depending on who our corporate partner is, whether it's a government or a corporate as well, we do take that into consideration. So for example, for the current global launch program um, that's inbound, we are focused more on B2B startups startups that are either in the fintech industry or in the smart city industry uh, with IoT products. That's one of the focus areas that we look at. Now, we did a program in Kobe. We've been running a program in Kobe for the past four years. And last year itself, the focus was on health tech. So we had a health tech track whereby we specifically had programming that was suitable and needed by the health tech startups itself. Cool. And when you guide the companies within the program, how do you first approach the problems that they have or how does the basically the whole support work? So for our accelerated programs itself, there's actually a fixed duration and there's also fixed programming that's put in place. For this current program that we are running actually called Global Launch, 
because the objective is to help all these B2B startups actually find local partners in Singapore, we do have a setup whereby we try and match them with corporates who may be potential customers of theirs or potential partners of all these startups itself. So we will as two parts, right? One is really the curriculum. What is it that these startups need to know in order to actually expand this new market? And that ranges from anything like hiring in Southeast Asia, which is very different from hiring in Poland or in the US, to incorporation, to the different cultural norms, to different pricing strategies and sales tactics that you actually have to learn and apply in Southeast Asia. That's one part, which is the curriculum and the educational part. So we conduct weekly workshops and we also have mentor hours for all the startups itself. On the other hand, though, it boils back down to what does a startup need in terms of market expansion? They need access to corporates, they need access to potential customers in the market. And that's also something that we try and put together and be able to facilitate that kind of connectivity amongst the startups and the potential corporate partners. What are the prerequisites for corporates to potentially be successful at this whole open innovation approach, right? Now, just to clarify, I think not all programs, not all accelerator programs actually have the corporate element in place. So this is something that is perhaps unique to some of the programs that we run here. What I think is actually really important for a corporate to understand before actually embarking on a partnership, you know, an outside-in kind of approach where they partner with a startup in order to innovate, in order to transform the organization. The biggest question I think they have to get right is really... What is the outcome and objective that they actually want to achieve out of this partnership, out of this exploration with the startup itself? How are they going to actually measure success? Do they just want to test a hypothesis? Do they want to just enter into a POC project? Or are they looking at numbers of successful POCs that come out? And also, are they actually open to investing in the startup itself? Or are they just looking for a form of commercial engagement whereby they're just a client to the startup. So ultimately, it's really what is the objective and how are you going to measure success from a corporate standpoint? What for you are the uh, success factors in working with corporates on these open innovation activities and accelerator programs to then really hit the objectives that they might set out? What have you seen that are really important things to get right? It's interesting that you raised that because that's the number one thing that we do whenever we embark on a new project with a corporate client or a government agency client as well. We actually sit down with them to really map out and understand not just what are the challenges that they are facing that they want to solve, but really what does success look like to them and how are they going to be measured. And this actually is applicable not just for the group as a whole, the project team as a whole, but also understanding what individual players in this project are held accountable for. A couple of things that we would then design based on that and what their objectives are, it really ranges by project. And I can't really provide you know, an overall summary of it because if we are working with you know a corporate client, for example, who is looking to run a corporate accelerator program, This boils back down to the accelerator program component, whereby a measurement of success would actually really be the NPS score, so the satisfaction of the startups who go through it itself. Uh, We can also do things like brand recall, you know, coming out of a demo day for this accelerator program. But if we're then moving towards a POC management program, 
whereby they are looking for startups who can specifically solve certain challenges that they have internally. The startups are brought on board, they jump straight into a POC process. Then what success would look like would be, you know, X number of POCs run and then creating a funnel into like a smaller number of successful POCs. But if you're then taking it, you know, into an even earlier stage, and this is one of the trends that we're seeing in the market, right, is that a lot of corporates who have maybe tried and tested an outside-in approach are now also increasingly looking back into the inside-out approach. So using their employees internally to actually come up with, you know, solutions and ideas for the problems that the, the corporation faces. So it's a whole intrapreneurship kind of innovation program right now that we're talking about. And if we look at, you know, intrapreneurship setup, then how do you measure success in that case? One corporate has actually shared that, you know, one thing that they've piloted was they started out by offering every one of their employee like a chance, like, you know, a single innovation pass. Everyone could submit one innovative idea and, you know, it goes into the funnel, into the competition and people would then pick winners, right? What they then realized was that the employees actually wouldn't submit ideas because in terms of the mindset that they have, everyone was still very conservative. So people were afraid of submitting stupid ideas. So the corporate then changed this. They gave every employee two innovation passes because the concept was that now they saw that employees felt that if I don't use any of this pass at all, it actually looks bad, bad on me because it says that, you know, I'm not innovative and I'm not thinking about ideas. So I can afford to just use one and show that I'm actually putting some thought into it. But, you know, without risking looking too silly or too stupid by putting out two ideas that, you know, wasn't picked in the end. So that's something that we see, you know, some corporates testing out and piloting as well as just means to encourage employees to adopt more of a change mindset and innovative mindset. Um, curious on your views in terms of entrepreneurship versus then open innovation with entrepreneurs, whether given that people in a large corporation usually uh, have been there for quite a while. And as you say, especially also what we see here in Asia might be a bit risk averse and a bit more conservative. But how could we potentially support them or how do you support them if you also run programs to that direction? to essentially embrace more of this entrepreneurial spirit that you see startups exhibit? Yeah, it's funny because I always think that this is a very interesting, but also back to basics kind of question, right? So on before joining 500 Startups, I ran my own education startup where I teach kids and teenagers how to become entrepreneurs, how to design things and how to come up with business plans. And so if you think about it, apart from the age difference, it's really similar, right? Because you're teaching someone who has, to a certain extent, been conditioned through the education system to have that fixed mindset. People are very process-driven, you know, maybe even just engineering-driven as well. But seldom do they adopt this or know how to adopt this like human-centered design concept to come up with various ideas. So when we look at entrepreneurship, I'm also thinking about it as the same way, whereby how do we help them be brave? How do we help them come up with ideas? And, you know, one thing that's commonly done, of course, is just through workshops and then taking them through a hackathon as well. What I would just really advise against is that implementing any of this in silos as a standalone basis without a full flow through. I think every corporate needs to understand that this is a journey. And that journey starts from 
educating and helping and providing that form of expertise and know-how to the employees, giving them the space to try out and to throw out ideas. And then after that, actually having a pathway for them, you know, the employees who are excited enough to want to continue working on the idea, a corporate should be set up such that they provide that avenue and that pathway for the employee to maybe take some time out of their regular you know, day jobs, 20% of the time, be allowed to actually embark and to further this venture itself. And then down the road, you know, after this idea has a prototype, they've tested it with the market, tested it with their own customers, can this employee then be empowered to maybe actually set up this startup to actually progress this idea and have some form of compensation plan that is structured very similar to how a startup is structured, right? Have some form of equity stake in it such that they actually, their interests are aligned to actually further this venture itself. I think that's very important in the whole intrapreneurship journey. There's no point just kicking off one hackathon or just doing one design thinking workshop without any follow through. Absolutely. In terms of these open innovation and those internal innovation concepts as 500 is a, a global company and uh, runs these things across the world. Do you see any geographical differences in how corporates from certain regions approach these things and what kind of mindsets they bring to it in the US versus, for example, Southeast Asia? You know, in terms of geography, there are some differences, not just about entrepreneurship approach, but really approach to undertaking innovation projects, right? Uh, we do see certain markets. In fact, I do feel like, you know, Singapore, for example, is one whereby in light of the current COVID-19 situation, a lot of innovation projects are seem to be put on the back burner. But we don't see the case with, say, the Japanese corporates. I think the Japanese corporates are used to taking a much longer-term view. They've probably also seen much more ups and downs in terms of the economic situation. And so as of right now, the Japanese corporates we find are still pretty active in terms of pursuing you know, different innovation initiatives. In the US, though, we have seen a slowdown as well. So a lot more corporates are taking, and I think traditionally they've always taken you know, kind of like a one-year window approach. So right now it's all about conserving cash. We see a huge slowdown in terms of you know, innovation initiatives there. But apart from geography, I think where entrepreneurship is something that is more of a focus, industry actually plays a big part in it. We do see that Healthcare industry, for example, you know, in terms of the hospital groups, because every single country has a different healthcare system and the healthcare system is really complicated, right? From your general practitioners to your specialist doctors to your payment systems to your letter of guarantees to your you know, insurance claims and all that. It's so complicated. And we haven't even talked about private versus public healthcare as well. So because it's so complicated, I think a lot of the healthcare groups are then looking internally because they believe that the employees know best. They know what works and what doesn't. Whereas a startup who say is coming from you know US and trying to enter Asia, might not really have a clue about how the healthcare system actually works here. And so whatever idea that they come up with, you know, whatever product that they're throwing out really isn't that applicable here, you know, without very significant tweaks anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting view. The industry structure definitely has a, a big impact also on how businesses operate and think. In that sense, which industries are you actually particularly 
interested in when it comes to the whole innovation side of things? Is there any particular focus? So there's always this uh, post-COVID-19 kind of focus area. Before COVID-19 hit, you know, the industry that I was really excited about was actually hospitality and travel. So I think that's one area which is prime for disruption, have started seeing signs of disruption, but there hasn't been a huge focus on innovation yet if you look at you know the huge hospitality players and also the travel and aviation players as well. So that is one where I feel is multifaceted, has many different ways whereby we can use technology to not just improve efficiency, but really transform the industry itself. Uh, but post that, you know, most of our clients and the, the partners in the ecosystem, I think a couple of industries that we've seen are particularly popular right now would still be healthcare, in particular, you know, affordable healthcare, you know, remote patient monitoring, information systems. That's one. The other one would be logistics as well. That's something that's really popular in terms of how can we smoothen or really the end-to-end kind of logistics setup. And of course, the other one, you know, which wouldn't come as a surprise would be remote work and productivity solutions. But if I were to say, you know, is that going to be like a focus area, industry area for 500 startups? You know, probably not. But in terms of investment side, I think that's definitely something that's interesting. On a personal level, I've always been very passionate about education. So it's also great to see that, you know, the time has finally come for learning, for e-learning, for online education to actually be in the limelight as well. But, you know, overall, I think one trend that we've seen uh, and that we suspect is going to persevere post this situation is frugality. So more and more, I think corporates are looking at ways that they can be more efficient. They can cut costs, create new revenue streams, but really still be pretty frugal at doing that. And if you think about it, consumers are probably going to react the same way as well. Right, Coming out of this with unemployment rates soaring high, more and more consumers are going to be looking at ways to stay frugal. And so if we think about what kind of ideas, what kind of you know, tech solutions that a corporate would adopt uh, and put in place, I would really encourage them to think about their customers and their customers' customers' needs instead of just like the corporate's uh, you know, structural changes that's needed there. Yeah, that's definitely a, a very good point for companies to set up for the next normal that comes after this to uh, sink a bit further downstream than just their, their direct customers and understand the trends. And interesting that you brought up uh, travel and, and hospitality. I mean, obviously, right now, that is super difficult. But at the same time, I suppose this would actually then lead to a lot of innovation once this is all over, since there are now a lot of very traditional hospitality companies also facing dire challenges or even bankruptcy. The window for actual innovation and new players to emerge will be uh, wide open. That's right. Uh, after everything rebounds again. So you mentioned education briefly, and I know that, of course, you have an education startup with uh, Smarter Me. You're also running the Young Founders Summit. I would love to, to also talk a little bit about that side of things, because that's and also speaking about entrepreneurship, but uh, for a much younger generation, as you also mentioned earlier. What inspired you to get into education around entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's funny because growing up, my mom was actually a teacher and I never thought that I would actually become an educator myself. 
So I took the very traditional path, right, of going to finance, being a banker, and then decided one day that I would actually leave. And that was really because, uh, so I have two kids of my own, and they were going through school, and I noticed that what they were studying in school really hasn't changed that much from what I did during my time. But I had seen the world change. I had seen, you know, e-commerce coming up. I had seen entrepreneurs who were coming up with various innovative ideas and really changing the status quo. And one day my daughter came home and she loves gaming. She loves like computers. She loves robots and all that stuff. And she came home and she said, why don't I get to learn that in school? I mean, it's only available as an after-school curricular activity, but why isn't it in part of our curriculum? And that's when I realized really that you know, education system hasn't changed, even though globally we're already talking about innovation. So what's going to happen 10 years from now when all these young Gen Zs actually come into the workforce, right? They'll be operating in a world that's vastly different, but may not quite have the mindset yet. So we're just going to be furthering the current generation and they'll be in the same kind of situation that we are in as well. You're still trying to change mindsets. So I felt that there's actually a chance for them to be open to new kinds of skill set, but in the meantime, also really develop that future-looking, forward-thinking, human-centered kind of mindset and also a heart set as well. And so the whole concept of Smart Email was created whereby we want to equip kids with the skill set, mindset, and heart set for the future. And, you know, in terms of the practical, tangible skills that we thought about then, it was definitely the digital skills. So, you know, coding as well as robotics, but more importantly as well, the whole design thinking and entrepreneurship skills. I think kids brilliant. Unencumbered, they have ideas that would really just wow you. And it's oftentimes the adults who are putting a dampener on them and saying that, oh, that already exists. Oh, you wouldn't be able to build that. But if we actually equip them with that kind of um, knowledge, the same way that, you know, we adults go through a program, right, an incubator accelerator program, then they really can do wonders. And what they have on their, as an age, is they have time. I love the framing of uh, skill set, mindset, and heart set. That is, I think, really nice and, and comprehensive. Maybe to briefly re reflect on that side as well, what have you done actually from running that for a few years? learned in terms of uh, especially entrepreneurship education, which is, I also believe, so important. What approaches might work, what approaches might not work with kids. Basically, how can you get that mindset across and help them to really embrace these different methodologies, ways of thinking? What does that look like? So I don't offend anyone by really describing kids as really just young versions of adults um, who are starting to get exposed to entrepreneurship, right? But if you, you know, we always kick off for someone who doesn't have an idea in the first place and it's really their very first encounter, I will always kick off with asking them, you know, what does innovation mean to them, right? What have Airbnb done? What did Netflix do? And just expose them to those concepts. And you know what? They know all these brands. But what's important is that we are, what we're trying to change as well is that instead of just coming up with an idea that, you know, they were perhaps uh, they were in school and they forgot their stationery or their books and they needed a place to buy one new one or rent something new. That's an idea, right? But we always bring them back to one step before it, which is what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Same way that we do teach adults as well. So 
what problem have you identified? Is this problem big enough such that you're not the only one facing it? There's, you know, millions of people globally who are also facing the same problem and then come up with a solution for that. So even with kids as well, we are pretty harsh in telling them that, you know, if no one is actually going to pay and buy your idea, then it's really not a worthwhile venture. I remember one of my students, she really cares about Penguin. Her idea was really to create a game whereby every time you play the game, you get points and your points get converted into dollars that uh, I think, you know, goes towards the conservation of the Antarctic and Antarctica. So we actually sat her down and, and helped her walk through the whole problem statement and understand whether or not enough people in this world care about the penguins and would play this game just so that they can earn points to save the penguins or not. And so we, we really take them through the whole process itself. And it's really not that surprising that kids grasp all these concepts pretty easily. They are really like sponges. So the moment you start reframing their mindset into thinking about what is the problem and then what kind of ideas can I come up with in order to solve it? That's a great starting point. And thereafter, it's all about just adding on. Adding on new concepts about, okay, you've got a problem, you've got a solution. Let's try how to test out the market. How do you conduct surveys out there? How do you conduct interviews out there? How do you get beta users, right? And from there on, how are you going to put tech on a revenue model to it, right? The different models that are in place, you know, advertising, subscription model, freemium, kits. Understand that they all play games. They know what a freemium model is. They know what a free trial model is as well. And then after that, we go on to you know, go to market strategy. Again, no surprise. When you talk about marketing these days, everything is digital. And these kids are digital natives. So they would tell you that the users of Facebook are what they call ancient dinosaurs, you know, people who are older than their parents, the grandparents, and even their parents. No kid their age and none of the Gen Zs would be on Facebook. People are on Instagram. And today, of course, people are on TikTok. How might you then use those tools in order to go to market? Uh, so that's really what we, we teach the kids. But more importantly, I think what we do with Young Founders Summit is actually give them access to mentors. And that's something that's totally fresh to them. Because in school and at home, they really only interact with two kinds of adults, their parents and their teachers. But here, you've suddenly introduced this new type of adult to them, which is a mentor, an advisor, a guidance counselor. And to these students, it's an amazing kind of experience because for once, you know, they have someone who is like hearing out their idea and giving them suggestions as to how to further the idea into an actual startup itself. Right. So that's an interesting insights as well. Eileen, thank you so much for taking us along your journey. And thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost in Transformation with our host Sebastian from Ming Labs. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to our channel and leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next time for another episode of our podcast.